Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I am your host, Joanna. Let's get started. Hello everyone, I'm your host Joanna and welcome back to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience podcast. So on today's topic, we are going to talk about cognitive appraisal, but more specifically, we're going to look at this idea of failure. So I think there's a lot of stigma surrounding the idea of failure and it generally has this really big negative connotation around it, but we're going to try and shift our focus to more the permission to fail and look at perspectives of failure, success and life as well. So to do so, I'll be joined by Pallavi Srivastava to talk about the fear of failure, how we can optimize this as an opportunity to grow, and just some strategies to help us do this as well. So Pallavi is a seasoned leadership and personal growth coach with over 17 years of experience in supporting people to thrive in their careers and lives, and she wears multiple hats to do so. She is the founder and CEO of The Wellbeing Ways, where she empowers individuals from diverse backgrounds to embrace their whole selves and develop a deep, honest and loving relationship with themselves. Hi, Pallavi. How are you today? Hello, Joanna. I'm good. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, of course. It's great to have you here with us today. Um, firstly, I'd love to ask you if you could introduce yourself a bit more with who, it, what you do and like everything about your role as well. Uh, sure, I would be happy to. Well, you talked about my 17 years of experience of supporting people to thrive. But before I got, got into this work of, you know, working with people, uh, I worked, I started my professional life as a business journalist and a few years uh, into that into that career, I realized I was burning out. I was lacking um, the. I wasn't finding the same enthusiasm as I found it, you know, when I started it. And long story short, uh, I did burn out, and I couldn't go on longer in that profession. Um, and I had to take a break. I took a whole year off. I went back to my undergrad study of psychology and I leaned and I did all the courses and all that process was just for me to understand myself, figuring out what went wrong for me. It it was a career that I chose out of my passion. I loved writing, I loved marketing and business. So so it started a process of a lot of self-reflection, understanding and knowing myself. And in some ways it was a big failure in my eyes mm. at that time for myself. Uh, yeah, but I think great things came out of it. Uh, I kind of rediscovered my love for psychology and people and, and just us growing as humans. Um, and I started my second stint as a well-being therapist from there, eventually before becoming a coach. And here I am. And as you shared, uh, I partnered 
at this time with organizations and leaders to elevate their effectiveness, performance, and most importantly, their resilience. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with uh, with us. I'd love to ask, like, what made you want to make the shift from a th- being a therapist to now a coach? Can you tell me a bit about that journey? Absolutely. That's like one of my favorite questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I asked it. Yeah. You know, so as I give you the background, because I personally suffered from a burnout and a kind of lack of purpose and energy in my work, my therapy was um, largely focused and I kind of worked a lot with people in the professional spaces struggling with professional challenges and <clears throat> so I was always inquisitive about how to kind of be more proactive about their challenges and at the same time and this was in 2016 I guess uh, I had a friend who was training as a coach so she needed a guinea pig to volunteer and I did volunteer <laughs> And when I worked with her, um, what was amazing was that some of my own personal things that I brought up in our coaching training for, which was training for her, uh, I really got some very powerful breakthroughs, which I felt, uh, you know, I didn't have with other tools that I have worked before, other therapists that I've worked before. And seeing that kind of personal um breakthroughs, personal growth that happened for me in a very short time through coaching uh, made me realize that that's something that I want to offer to the people that I work with. And and I think both have its place. I think therapy has its place in time and coaching has its place in time. So I'm not saying one is better than other, but the reason I was so attracted towards coaching uh, at that moment was and it continues to be my attraction is I love uh, the emphasis on who we are. What do we want? What matters to us? You know, what is is that goal that I'm chasing? Is that really important? So these are some big questions that we ask in coaching proactively, not when something breaks down, but we ask that as part of the coaching design, as part of the coaching relationship. And and growth is like one of the uh, most important uh, center of a lot of coaching. So those are the things that I felt just aligned very well with who I am and what I was seeking. And so, yeah, one thing led to another. I got trained as a coach and now I have my coaching company, The Wellbeing Ways LLC, and I'm supporting uh, some wonderful people through this tool. That's really amazing. And can you tell me some of the approaches that you take with like the people you work with to work through some of these important things? Yeah. So uh, could you kind of ask me that again? Like, what do you mean when you say approaches? Are you asking about uh, tools or are you asking about the modality? What? Yeah. So any tools or techniques or sort of maybe concepts that you use when you work with clients or organizations or people, uh, what are those things? Yeah. So one of um, the major focus or approach of my work is one-to-one. I do do group training, some group coaching, but my favorite remains one-to-one work. Uh, I don't know if that bias continues from being a therapist, (laughs) but I just love uh, how deep people can dive when they are working in a one-to-one setup with a with a coach or a professional and 
one of my favorite tools that I've always been using is asking them the question. And sometimes these questions, most simplest questions, they are not like, oh, something big, like just asking, what do you want in given situation? How, how does that affect you? How does this event that happened that was unpleasant makes you feel, you know? So just asking questions, I feel is one of the most powerful tools. I do use a lot of other, uh, like leaning into positive psychology tools, uh, leaning into, um, some of the other wonderful tools that are there, but my personal favorite remains asking people questions and then really listening, you know, not just listening to their words, listening to, if I ask you, Joanna, how are you doing? And you say, uh, well, I'm good. That's one answer. You can say, I'm good. You can say the same, oh, I'm good. You know, the same three words, yeah. but they communicate very different things to me. And so asking questions and really listening to what is being said and what is not being said is my favorite way of how I approach uh, people. I, I, I always say my job is very similar to that of a detective. And, <laughs> and all the clues are with the client in their behavior, in their words, in their actions, in their demeanor. And I'm just helping them solve the puzzle that is themselves. Yeah, I love that. I really am glad you mentioned the idea of listening. I feel like when you listen to how someone says things, it can actually change how you perceive what's being said and how they're actually feeling about it. Um, and that's such an interesting thing to me, just looking at that idea of listening and like its correlation to, you know, words. And I hope we can talk a bit more about that as well as we talk about today's topic too. Um, but I'd love to dive into a section that we've called um, have you met Pallavi? So we're just going to ask you some more get to know you questions um, before we get into our interview for today. So my first one for you is about books. Do you have a favorite book at all or anything that you're reading at the moment? So yeah, um, I think my favorite books keep changing. Like <laughs> the recent yeah. or the... so at the moment, one of my favorites is The Coaching Habit uh, okay. by Michael Bungis Tanier. And what I love about the book is that it makes coaching conversation accessible. So it just gives you seven questions that you can use as a parent, as a spouse, as a leader, as a manager, as an employee. You can use those questions in any context, in any relationship to enhance the quality of that relationship. So it's it's really, um, yeah, top of my mind favorite <laughs> for now. Yeah, simply awesome. because it, it really simplifies and just puts those seven questions and you can take that and go ahead and, you know, apply it. Yeah, awesome. Are you normally into nonfiction or do you look like into fictional books as well? It's been a while since I have, I was a great, like I used to love reading fiction mm. um, earlier in the day, <laughs> earlier in my life. <laughs> but I have, it's been a while since I, uh, I think read uh, book of fiction. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm such a fiction fan. I don't think I've properly read anything that's nonfiction in a while. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing that one with us. My next one for you is movies. Are you into movies? Yeah, I love all kind of movies. <laughs> yeah. 
Is there like a favorite one, one that you have? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think my last recent favorite is Dune. Totally has nothing to do with the subject that you're talking oh. about, but I just like the fantasy, the grand scale, and and how it keeps you on your toes till from the beginning to the end. Yeah, I haven't watched that one actually. Um, I'm. I think it's the fact that it's a really long movie has kind of put <laughs> me off it a bit. Um, but there's a book as well. Is that something you'd want to read? Oh. Yeah, you know, I've been wanting to, but then I just, I know that there are many books in the series and I'm like, oh no, if I get started. (laughs) So I haven't gotten around to, yes. But I'm going back to your previous question and I think back in the day, I was a great fan of, uh, I forget, oh my God, that's a famous writer and there were a lot of movies made I don't know I think you guys may have to cut this I totally forgot <laughs> the name of the book and the author but that's anyways, okay yeah. no worries um and my next one is about podcasts are you a podcast listener uh so I'm not a great auditory uh learner so podcasts are usually harder for me versus books or watching uh, movies and videos but I do love Brené Brown's podcast um, often it does take me a lot more work to kind of learn things and focus through auditory um, methods yeah for sure um, and my last one is a famous role model is there anyone it doesn't even have to be someone famous but anyone in your life that you look up to at all yeah it's a very interesting answer um, my nephew his four year old and my niece She's six year old. I and I mean that. I literally every day. It's like I learn so much from them. Um, whether it's just the capacity, just the sheer, uh, you know, curiosity, just raw curiosity for the sake of curiosity. That's just amazing and inspiring. And you know, as being in this profession, curiosity is one of the very important requirements for me. And I consider myself a very curious person. Mm-hmm. Having said that, when I look at them and I'm like, I'm learning <laughs> every day, I'm getting inspired and I'm learning a lot from them about how to just stay curious for the sake of curiosity. So I would definitely say it's the two of them. I love that response. Honestly, no one has ever said that someone younger to them is, you know, someone they look up to. But I think that's such a valid point. And I think that's really good. I feel like young kids are so curious and we often think that they're the ones who should be learning from us, like people who are older to them. But I feel like there is so much you can learn from a little kid who is just like so curious about everything. Um, But yeah, that's such an interesting point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, and I'd love to get straight into our interview questions now. So my first one for you is why is resilience important in our life in your personal opinion? Yeah, um, that's a great question to start with. Uh, you know, resilience is important because I think it's, it's a necessity. Uh, there will think be things that will happen that happen in our life that, uh, are not what we want a lot of times you know life uh, doesn't go as we plan as we want um, and things happen that are unpleasant or uncomfortable for us or events that we are not happy about we fail we make mistakes you know heartbreaks happen and all those things how do you move 
forward when something unsavory, unpleasant, uncomfortable has happened to you? What do you need? What's that quality? It is resilience. You know, it's it's the capacity to um to adapt to something uh, that you didn't expect to happen that has happened. You know, to adapt to that new circumstance, to kind of bounce back from it, to move forward from it, and and if you can look back and see what what is there for you to grow from in that situation, is there something you're learning about your personality? Is there something you're learning about? how to respond to certain situations. So um, I, I would say that resilience is one of the necessities that we have. And, and I would say that all humans are resilient in some way or the other to certain degree. Some might be more resilient than others, but we all have it. It's an inherent quality. And the best part is, no matter where that quality is, no matter how much access you have to it consciously, you can always grow it as a skill. You can always expand into it. Yeah, for sure. And do you think, I love asking this question, but do you think resilience is something people can just be born with and constantly have? Or do you think everyone needs to sort of build resilience throughout their life? Answer uh, so it's both. Some people are born with naturally more resilience. And again, going back to our example of kids, I think kids are highly resilient. You see how much they fall, they get up just the the process of learning how to walk, <laughs> right? In learning how to climb things. I see my, like I was talking about my nephew and niece, I see them in the playground climbing things like they look like monkey to me. They keep falling, they cry, they get hurt, you know, but they get up and they so so to answer your question it is a bit of both some people can have more natural resilience um and get again like give it irrespective of the resilience that you have naturally you can grow that as a capacity and there's a fabulous book on this i forget the name of the author it's called the resilience factor which talks about resilience as a capability that uh humans can build yeah. And is, is that something that you help your like clients with in your processes with them as well? Absolutely. That's one of the very important things. In fact, uh, when I, I'm doing my work with the corporate clients, I talk a lot about something called leader resilience, you know, and it is uh, in one of the sections that I work with is startups, you know, and oh. uh, the startup leaders, they uh, need to be fairly resilient. It's one of the key things that we work on because there's a lot of uncertainty that they feel. There's a lot of rejection. I mean, I think just everybody faces rejection, but the, the amount of rejection and knows that startup leaders and people in the senior position in startup go through is, is, is significantly more than leaders in bigger corporations. And they're facing adversity, they're facing no's, they're facing rejections, they're facing, you know, a lot of these things that compound together. And the success of that company, of that startup depends a lot and heavily on how its leaders and the team, how resilient they are, how quickly they bounce back from that challenge, from that rejection, how quickly they adapt how, you know, if they were looking for a technical 
approach and it fails in the process, how you know resilient are is the leader and the team to come up with an alternative technical plan to build from that. So yes, resilience is something that I um, I work a lot. In fact, it shows up almost all the time <laughs> in, in my work. And one one example I wanted to give you, give you about resilience, which which may not on face of it look like resilience, but you know, I was working with someone who hired me personally for them, a young leader in in uh, life sciences uh, corporation. And one of the th- key focus for her was to get a higher salary because she felt uh, that the salary that she was given by her company wasn't at par with what's the market rate. And so we worked towards uh, how does she wants to communicate. So a lot of this was focused around communication and expression. And she goes and has that conversation with the HR and the senior leader. And they listened to her and everything. And then they said, oh, no, you know, this is, we hear what you're saying and what you want. But you are, this is a misunderstanding and you're getting paid. And basically the outcome wasn't exactly what she wanted. She didn't get the hike. They said, we hear you, we value you, but this is what it is. And we talked about it and we kind of unpacked how she was feeling. In 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 terms of pure outcome, it looks like a failure. But when she looked at in terms of her efforts and expression and the courage and the communication, she realized, wow, it's actually not a not a failure it's just that the outcome wasn't the same and then we worked towards we looked at what was the environmental factors that contributed to that outcome and we were able to look at what are the other things that she needs to do so that in the next cycle she can go back and talk about this and we worked on that and we worked for like another four months when the review was up she got the hike she got the promotion but the point is that that looking at the first outcome, she didn't let it derail her. You know, that's mm-hmm. where the resilience as for her person. This was a personal resilience in in the workspace, not about leading the team, but what she wanted. But that that's the important point um, that I was trying to make. That it's important to look at not only the outcome. Um, in standalone, but also the process, the effort. And yes, to answer your question again briefly, yes, resilience comes up as a very important topic in almost all conversations in some way or the other. Yeah. So it's not just about getting to the end and being like, oh, have I failed or have I succeeded? But looking at the entire process as a whole and being like, how has my journey looked like? What have I put into this? And what are the positives I can take out of this instead of just focusing on, am I successful? Am I not successful at the end? Exactly. Exactly. It's not a black and white, yes or no, you know, tick mark or cross kind of evaluation. Exactly. So being more objective, being more process oriented versus only outcome oriented. Yeah, for sure. And how does the feel of like the feeling and fear of failure affect individuals' decision-making processes and, you know, their willingness to be able to take on new challenges without being too scared to do so? Yeah, I love that question. (laughs) I think fear of failure is 
probably one of the biggest bane of human existence. <laughs> if we didn't have fear of failure, we will do crazy things. So, uh, so some amount of fear of failure probably is good. It it keeps us safe. <laughs> but yeah, so coming to your question about fear of failure and how it holds us back from uh, probably doing what we want to do. Uh, I, I really want to mention here a study I don't know if you're aware of. Uh, so uh, Carol Dweck is a is a researcher at Stanford and she's written this book Mindset and she's done a lot of study around people's perspective on failure and challenges, success and all these things. And so she's done different versions of the study, but but the center center of it is that she. Uh, works with these young students somewhere between four year to 11 years of age and she gives them puzzles or their team they give them puzzles to do easy level puzzles and then they ask then they praise them after the puzzle has been done and one group is praised on how smart they are how intelligent they are how well they did in the puzzle and the other group is praised around um, their effort of doing the puzzle, the process of how they were, you know, attending to the puzzle. And what they find is that in the next round, the first group who were praised for their intelligence, who were praised for the success of their, uh, uh, how well they did the puzzle, you know, they would always choose for an even offered a choice between a harder puzzle and an easier puzzle at the next level, they would always choose the easier puzzle versus people who were placed around the process of them doing the puzzle the effort that they put you know along the way they would go for uh, uh they would always go for the harder puzzle and so what the difference that i'm trying to make is by by praising people around their intelligence around only the success only the outcome uh, we create a fear of failure. We create anxiety, you know, and and that decreases people's risk-taking abilities, that discourages people from taking up harder challenges because that means if they take a bigger challenge, if they do something which is more hard uh, and they fail at it, it's a reflection on who they are. And what it does it say about them? They, they translated that, oh, it means that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not intelligent enough. So it's personal. It's, it's a lack of capability. So that fear can make you, um, people who have, who have that gripping fear around failure, they often think of failure as, an, as a statement about who they are or who they are not versus when people learn how to process that fear around the failure, it's not that you will never have fear of failure, but you normalize having it. You normalize and you create conversations around just because you're scared of something doesn't mean you should not do it. Yeah. And like, as you were talking, I was noticing that maybe is like this fear of failure rooted from like a lack of confidence in one's ability to take on challenges and be okay whether or not the outcome is successful or is, you know, like more veering towards a failure? 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It is to do with the confidence, right? But it is also to do uh, with what it, it, one of the things is, of course, the confidence that, oh, do I believe that I can do this harder thing? You know, but that that confidence, again, if we lean only into the confidence, we would only take up certain kind of challenges, which is still in our comfort zone. There are times that people are not confident about their abilities, but what you pointed out in that second part of the sentence is the most important thing, that they are confident in that even if they fail, even if it doesn't turn out the way uh, they expect things to turn out, they, they're still going to be okay. They're still going to grow from it, learn from it. So that, that difference in confidence is important. Yeah, and... In what ways can we take this failure and see it as an opportunity for innovation and creativity and just growing both individually or as, you know, on an organizational level? Yeah, uh, I think one of the most important thing is just what things like we, you and I are doing, just talking more about failure. Uh, I was, you know, having a conversation with this very young one, she's, this is PhD and just got into the workforce probably a year or two year old. And she was asking me something about, oh, how do I take decisions and convince other people around the decision? And I was talking about something, listening it. And then I was saying, and at the end of it, you have to give yourself, you know, room when you're making decisions. You have to know that not all your decisions are going to be right. There has to be room for mistakes. We are not, nobody's superhuman, everybody makes mistakes. And what I was shocked was the perception that people that, who are so fresh, who are so young, even they have, is that it's, it's, it's unfair. Like she said, no, if I'm working in, in such a competitive pharmaceutical industry, I don't have room to make mistakes. Yeah. You understand? Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I totally forgot your question. <laughs> Could you? That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. So my question was surrounding looking at failure and then turning it into an opportunity for innovation and creativity and just yeah. growing on an individual yeah. and organizational level. Thank you. Thank you for asking yeah. that again. So yeah, That's I was okay. just making a point that if we that kind of an environment and that kind of a perspective is only going to hold us back. So one of the key things is normalizing failure in an organization and outside in your home. Like, you know, if you're a parent, normalizing that in your house, in front of your children, modeling that, talking about organization, encouraging that that you need to take, you know, some amount of calculated risk-taking and it's okay to fail. Um, I I love to, like, if you look at uh, in this whole, uh, you know, expectation right now in the corporate world, that's a lot of people have that, oh, there's no room to make mistakes and failure is, is, is not, not doing anybody any good. And it's not correct. If you look in the history of the corporate, some of the greatest companies have been the companies that have actually encouraged and um, a conscious culture of taking risks. And when you take risks, you will fail. It's just that we don't talk about the failure. We talk about mm. overnight successes, right? Oh, yeah. at 23, this person is a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about that. We, we have created these 
unnecessary pressure and expectation around we need to succeed 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 and as if like that's the sole aim of human existence and not just it's impossible i feel it's just where's the fun in that yeah. <laughs> if you're not experimenting right if you're and the only way you can experiment take risks do things out of the box is when you have permission to fail and that failure is not a reflection on who you are as a person that failure is about something you did in a given context and that strategy that action failed you didn't fail as a person right so i feel like separating failure um and not making a noun not making it i'm a failure but i failed you know a verb so yeah uh and and i too think that what is good is that companies at least some companies are getting aware of it and starting conversations around it uh there are organizations that hire consultants and coaches and other experts uh you know trainers to talk about the importance of failing and taking up challenges and growing so i think uh there is conversation around this people are talking about it i still do feel that it's not at all enough yeah and when you said this like idea of like giving ourselves permission to fail how do we go about even doing that like does that involve putting ourselves in a different mindset does it involve the people around us giving us permission to fail can you talk us through a bit more about I that yes yes yeah. it's one of my favorite tools uh, <laughs> i make my clients write themselves a permission slip <laughs> you know how a permission i learned slip. that Yeah, I learned that in you know my coach did this with me and that's how I learned that in the US education system like the in schools in certain areas like if you are in a class but you want to go somewhere you kind of get a permission slip signed from a teacher. Mm-hmm. So that, so I always ask my clients what is a permission you need to give yourself here to be able to fully experiment in this space, you know. As sometimes they say oh i and, and this is how it goes i are you you know you can name yourself like i can say for myself dear pallavi you have full permission to go and do this experimentative workshop in this company and fail spectacularly i know that sounds ridiculous right <laughs> if you say that it sounds ridiculous but the the kind of freedom it gives you now when you have yourself when you've given yourself that permission your mental resources are free to actually focus on the task at hand you're gonna going to take a little more risk because what's the worst that's going to happen if i'm going to do something and fail yeah okay people eventually going to forget about me <laughs> right <laughs> nobody's obsessed yeah about us it, i'm not gonna die but till it's in my head you know there is this un un unsaid expectation that i cannot fail you have you noticed the amount of mental space and bandwidth that takes would be like a lot 
a lot. Yeah. And so that's that's another thing that I work a lot with my clients for themselves, permission slips for themselves. And sometimes literally creating permission slips for their teams when they're leading teams, creating that designed, you know, when they're working on project or something I call, we do a lot in coaching, but also we help people and teams do this is around design alliance. Make an alliance with the team that you're working. It's okay to fail. It's okay to get things wrong. Sometimes, you know, before you can get things right, you, mm. you need to make a few mistakes along the way. So having that design, having that conversation that it is okay uh, for us to make mistakes. It is okay for us to go a few different ways before we find the right path is very, very important. And again, like I said, a lot of times that happens with startups. They take yeah. one approach. They take one direction. They take a product. They go to the market and like people are like, no, that's not what they want. Which one, which startup, which leader, which team is going to you know, thrive in that kind of an environment, the team that comes back? And says, okay, look, this didn't work. We thought this is going to be a great product, but turns out this is not exactly what people want. So this here is the feedback we got. Let's work through it. Let's. So people who don't give up, and you don't give up if you have, if you don't take that permission personally, if it's not a statement on your capability, but something that you experimented. Yeah. You know how scientists work in a lab. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I feel like it, like what you're talking about requires a lot of reframing of like your mindset. And if, for example, if you're going to tell yourself, okay, it's okay if I go into this and it's okay if it ends up being a failure, but then you have this like history of past failures. How do you not let your history or like past failures impact your ability to move forward and be okay with future failures? Right. I, I love that question. And it's a matter of choice. At the end, you know, it's all a story you're telling yourself. So which story do you want to tell yourself is what I ask. Yeah. Right? If you failed and you failed, let's say, multiple times, you can tell yourself a story that I'm a loser and I keep failing and I'm not smart enough, I'm not talented enough, you can tell that story. Or you can tell yourself a story that, wow, I'm really, you know, I love taking up challenges. I really love, you know, reaching for things that are out of my current capacity. And I learn and I grow. And, and like you said, we have, I want to talk here a little bit about something called negativity bias. You know, we as humans, if we are doing 10 things and eight of those things are turning out well, great. But one or two of those things that we are failing at and not doing well, we have this, our brain is wired to emphasize more on that one or two failure or things that you didn't do well. So your failures to you stand out much more than your successes. So that's another thing. Even if somebody is failing a lot, it's it's not that they're not having successes or they're not growing or they're not doing the right things. It's just that this negativity bias makes it hard for you to see same the things that you're doing right versus the things that you're failing at, you know, the mistakes in the same light. It's not one is to one. 
So there was some, I and this is debatable, but there was this positivity ratio that uh, a psychologist came up with. And she talks about how like you need at least three or four positive events to outset one negative, three or four successful things to stand out in your head versus one you know, thing you failed at. So yeah, so so it all comes back to in the end, I ask is what is the story you're going to believe about yourself? And which is the story that helps you? What happens to you when you tell yourself that, oh, I'm a loser. This clearly shows that I can. And now this does not mean that I'm going to suddenly at 38 years old, going to say tomorrow I'm going to go um appear for the Olympics. No, I have never practiced <laughs> it. doesn't mean being, you know, going, just taking that you can do anything as a superhuman. Yeah. This is not a conversation around that. This is a conversation around what is a story that helps you. And if, if in your same circumstances, if it was someone you cared about, let's say a child or a dear friend or even your spouse that you love a lot, you know, if they were going through a similar situation, how would you respond to their failure? How would you frame their failure back to them? Would you tell them that they are a loser or would you say that, you know, would you focus on all the things that they have done right? What, ask them questions, what did they learn? What do they think they could do differently? Yeah. And what be, best, one of the things I love talking about failure and how it's like so good for learning and growing one of the examples is metaphors is to look at going to the gym when you go to the gym to lift weight or when you go to the gym even to start when you're first starting to run right your body's not conditioned you could probably just run if you never run in your life you could probably just jog for two minutes and you would be out of your bed breath and your body will be sore for the next few days but you keep doing it day in and day out, like a few times a week for weeks and months and years, and you build that capacity. Same thing is about, you know, lifting weight. You first time you go to the gym, I remember I could not lift more than five pounds, you know, and I was so sore for the next two days and my muscles probably were breaking down. And then I'm, I have been going to the gym for the last six years, very, very consistently. And now I deadlift 140, 150 pounds. Wow. That is more than my body weight. But how did every day I was training my muscle, not every day, well, a few times a week, I, was, <laughs> I trained my muscle to failure. You know, it's a whole concept in weight training. It's called to failure. And I bet in other, uh, exercise but I, I am I focus more towards weight training so I know a little more about that we talk about training to failure you literally train and lift till you feel that's your last trip you're gonna fail and that's when the muscle is stretched and stressed and then it learns and, and then it grows over the period of time and then one fine day same weight that was so hard to lift is easy and then you go repeat the process again you go to the next hard weight challenging weight 
how do we go about being consistent with doing things when there's the chance that we could fail every single time we try to do something? Like, for example, with going to the gym, like you go to the gym once and you can't lift as much as you want to and it makes you feel bad about yourself and then you go again and it's just like this consistent cycle of not getting where you want to be. How do we persist through that? I love that question. You know, what you're pointing to is the emotion and the action. So we we gave ourselves permission to feel the emotion. And that emotion could be um, when you fail, it could make you feel sad. It could make you feel uh, rejected. It could make you feel oh, incapable. You know, whatever your feelings are in the moment, it's it's important to give yourself permission to feel those feelings, but knowing that that's a different, the feelings don't, not letting the feelings dictate what you do next. Separating what you're feeling, what your emotions are versus the actions that you want to take. And what you're pointing to words here is again, what, you know, um, Daniel Kahn, when he won the Nobel Prize for this, he talked about how human thinking has two systems, system one and system two. He talked about how system one is the intuitive, fast thinking system, which is like, like if you're driving and suddenly somebody, you know, you feel like somebody suddenly came in your path, you would hit the brake, like without thinking, logically processing. That's the system one, the fast thinking. And the slow, the second system, system two is called the logical, slow thinking, uh, which looks at facts and analyzes all uh, all the facts and logics. And so it's a slower system because it is constantly looking at all those things, right? And what I talk about is a lot of our feelings and emotions are part of the system one brain. They are useful data and they're also important to pay attention to, uh, but they should not all the time dictate your action. So so going back and knowing that even if you're going to fail is the question, what's good for you? What do you want to really do? Like if you ask me, what matters to me? Being fit and healthy and strong matters to me much more than feeling rejected. So I am... And it doesn't mean I deny my feeling that I failed or I didn't, I wasn't able to lift as much as I wanted to, right? I still feel sad on those days when it feels like a failure. Um, but I keep going back to that um, decision, to that choice that I previously made. I'm saying yes to my something that is more important to me which is fitness, which is health, which is being strong. That's that's a value for me. And, and so I'm kind of talking about, again, a concept that we talk a lot about in coaching uh, is around values. Values are things that what really, truly, deeply matter to you as a person. And we all have certain things that we value. Yeah. And touching back on that idea of telling yourself a certain story how can we use that as a strategy to sort of help us shift our perspective on failure so would you be able to maybe give us an example of creating a story for ourselves yeah I would love I would give you an example that we have probably all heard 
a million times. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you, uh, you know, Thomas Edison who invented the light bulb? Yeah. He he has this famous saying that I didn't fail 10,000 times. I just found 10,000 ways of how not to make a bulb. <laughs> so it's something called perspective, right? It's the same thing. So before he actually invented the bulb, he failed. He tried like more than 10,000 different ways and time and he failed. Each of those 10,000 times till he succeeded that one mm-hmm. time. And so he said that I haven't failed 10,000 times. I have just found 10,000 ways that don't work to make the bulb. You see the story, the perspective. So coming to your question more directly is one of the good things to see is like, and you can role play. You can be like, okay, let's name this voice A, Ben who says, you're a failure, you can never do anything right, you know? (laughs) And that's why you make it fun. You make it a puppet character. And then you can say, okay, now you can bring in another character. Maybe you can just, you know, channel Edison as a friend (laughs) and say, what would Edison, so sometimes I ask my clients, what would you think Edison say to that? Again, I work with a lot of scientist leaders, so it worked great with them (laughs) so again you find your voice that you find appealing and inspiring it's totally okay to lean into famous people successful people and their voices and say you know what would they say to that yeah so one of of the things i ask myself is uh i i because that uh thomas edison's statement really resonated with me so i asked myself and i asked a lot of my clients what would you think you know, if this was Thomas Edison and he had failed at this, what do you think he would say? Yeah. And boom, it will channel a totally different part of your brain and then you'll come up with interesting things. You'll be surprised. Sometimes I say, what would my nephew Leo say? Yeah. <laughs> he would have a totally different perspective. And so getting yeah. out of your brain and looking mm. at these things. Yeah, for sure. You I totally love go crazy. That. Yeah. yeah. No, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, I love that idea of like trying to use someone else's perspective as well. Someone that you really, you know, know a lot about how they might see something and using that instead of yours. Cause I feel like there are a lot of times where you want to see something differently, but you're so stuck in your head about how you see it. And it's like, I don't know how to get out of this. And maybe it's like a good way to be like, okay, if this person was in my shoes, how would they handle it? Exactly, exactly. You got it absolutely right. And one of the, like in my coach training, one of the key modules was around this where we would just play around with different names. And, you know, I remember one of my fellow students asking me, uh, if you were Darth Vader instead of this person, what would he say? And, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, he's going to say that I should totally go and destroy the other person. And that's definitely not me. So that's just takes up sometimes just getting into a perspective that is so um, absurd to you also mm. helps you get out of your head, out of those fixed models. You know what we say, out of box. So yeah. it's very important to get out of the box. I love that. I absolutely love that. I feel like that's even a technique that people can use in their life generally to help build their resilience regarding anything. It doesn't even have to be about failure, like just anything in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is that is actually what um, uh, uh, one of the 
approaches in coaching, one of the key, like we get trained into three or four different kinds of approaches in the core uh, coach training and shifting perspectives is one. And you are exactly right. You can use it not just for resilience, for anything. Yeah. And I want to talk about the role that self-compassion and self-reflection plays as well. So while we are using techniques like, you know, stepping out of the box, thinking of someone else's perspectives, is there a way we can look more within as well sometimes through reflection and self-compassion to help us work through this fear of failure? Absolutely. And uh, I love that you're talking about self-compassion. It is, it is, um, I think one of the very important things and you or at least I keep getting surprised how little self-compassion most of us have you know people will say oh no we are all selfish no we are not actually um, selfish we it is so hard for us uh, for people in general to find compassion and kindness towards themselves and and first uh, to talk about using self-compassion to address the fear of failure in all those things before that I just want to kind of break down what compassion self-compassion really means and I love what Kristen Neff talks about uh, she's an expert on self-compassion and she talks about how self-compassion is simply compassion you know um um directed towards yourself what does that really mean that means that in in an event that is not going in your favor or a situation or a circumstance do you do you um heavily criticize yourself judge yourself use that mean voice inside your head for yourself or are you kind and understand that we are all vulnerable we are all human, we all make mistakes. And I may have just made a mistake. So looking at that gentleness, that kindness towards yourself. And and we talk about three things into self-compassion is kindness, um, mindfulness of the emotion. You may feel, I have let myself down, right? And bring, bringing mindfulness to that emotion. When you feel I've let myself down, I really worked hard, but I fail at that project or I didn't do as well I expected. Uh, and you're feeling let down. It's okay to give yourself permission to feel that emotion with mindfulness, with that presence. And the third thing is what she talks about, shared humanity. We are all human. And when we, when we fail in our failings, in our vulnerabilities, it's a reminder for us that that's what being human, one of the things, you know, is that we are vulnerable, that we will make mistakes. So, so touching upon self-compassion, unpacking that a little bit, what it looks like more practically is, you know, I'll go back to the same technique, but a little different way mm. is leaning into the voices in your head. And this sounds a little... Uh, this may sound a little too much out there. Like sometimes people look at me when I talk about this, like I have three heads or something. But whether you accept it or not, we as humans are constantly talking to ourselves in our head. Okay. Whether we want to acknowledge that or not, it's constantly going on. And <laughs> a lot of these loud voices in our head is often the critical voices they're like judging you 
So using self-compassion for getting aware that there is a constant, probably a tape going on in your head. You know, Brené Brown talks about it. I forget the term that she uses, but yeah. So there are lots of, lots of good conversation around this, around self-talk, on how you're talking to yourself. So getting aware of the nasty voices inside your head, <laughs> using self-compassion, even start there for those nasty voices because they want that part of you, that voice in your head wants you to do well. And that's why it's judging you. Probably you learned that when you were younger from your parents or from your teachers, you know, or other adults around you that when you made a mistake, they used a strong um um, critical voice to get you back in line and so you've gotten used to treating yourself like that but now as you learn self-compassion what if you create a part of you a separate voice in your head which is more compassionate and you say okay I know there goes this old record again but I'm going to lean into this self-compassionate Joanna and I'm going to ask her what does she think so you're still leaning inside yourself but you are kind of still making that part of you or that voice of you a little external because when it's all just thoughts in your head, it's very hard to separate them. So that's the reason this is, again, a very powerful tool, like externalizing the voices inside your head and actively creating. And this doesn't happen overnight if you haven't done it before, if you haven't been compassionate to yourself for years. It's not that overnight a person can create these but if you're committed to it you constantly and consciously keep you know leaning into or inviting over that compassionate voice and us as doing it long over it would become a, eventually an automatic response yeah so again is it more just like putting something into practice and sticking with it and just working with yourself as well to, you know, be like, okay, so the first time I try to do this, it might not work as well as I want it to. But if I keep going, then, you know, it'll become exactly. sort of something I can fall back on and use. Exactly. And so you see, I love how you're putting it. It's exactly like that. The, like we talked about the gym example. So, it's, yeah. so even in, in, in dealing with this failure and resilience, <laughs> you are actually building more resilience. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I see it. Yeah, no, I just realized the cycle that what you do to help build more resilience is it's like this massive cycle of just having to keep applying things and persisting and, you know, not letting failing at once be what deters you from ever doing it again. Exactly, exactly. And something I want to, you know, highlight is... As humans, Joanna, and I bet you relate with that, um, we are wired to kind of for wanting and desiring growth, mm. being just a little bit better. But in all this noisy society, we have kind of created an unreal impression that no, we all, we only crave success, but that's not true, you know? More than success, more than anything, as humans, we are wired to crave growth. And you would see as once you go along that path, like you were saying, right, keep practicing. And once you look at things from that perspective of growing, learning and being better, even the process becomes fun and exciting and not just the outcome of it. Yeah, 
And I think that's that's what I love about the work that I do. People come with all these things. I want the next promotion. You know, I just want to be a better leader and lead through this project very, very well. They come for all these reasons. But when they complete the process or when they are in the process, they find these other things that really matter to them, that brings them alive. And that outcome is just one of the side effects. And, yeah. and the process of, and the journey becomes uh, fun and important and exciting. Yeah. And shifting to just this idea of like success, because we've talked a lot about failure now and we've talked about some of the strategies we can use, different approaches we can take. Um, So when we're looking at this idea of success, what do you think are some of the dangers of a society that is just so heavily focused on being successful all the time? What does this do to like the pressure it puts on ourselves to be perfect and be successful? Yeah, I mean, to at the cost of sounding maybe like too grand, I feel like it takes away the humanity from us, right? Like mm. you're constantly like you're not allowed to be human. You're not allowed to do something. Oh, like, let's just look at that. I want to look at that. That that idea sounds so interesting. What happens if I work on that? You know, you're taking away the fascination. You're taking away all the things that brings you alive as a person. And you see, this is the reason you see a lot of um, cases of corporate fraud nowadays, like uh, this undue pressure around success, this undue obsession around success as a society. Uh, We heard, you know, the whole um, trial that went through for Theranos, for Elizabeth Holmes, Mm. right? You know her, so she yeah. she is she was um, the startup founder, and she had a visionary idea of making the blood tests more accessible, faster, cheaper. And but what happened was that the technical piece of it, at least the approach that they took, didn't work. But she faked it once for a meeting, thinking she will correct it later. And then from one lie to the other, and and Carol Dweck talks about Elizabeth Holmes and other corporate frauds and examples where how this constant pressure of succeeding at any cost, you know, creates uh, unrealistic expectations and makes us dishonest at that level where millions and billions of dollars were taken based on lies one after the other. Right. And and there are so many examples. I, I don't know if you've heard of there's another company called Frank that got uh, so it was a financial company and they worked with they claim to have worked with students. They claim they have five hundred million customers and sold their company to one of the big banks in the US called Chase Mog, JP Morgan Chase, and turned out they only had three hundred thousand customers. So it's the point that I why I'm making is that why are we having all these, you know, more and more uh, cases of corporate frauds? I think, and if you look at a lot of these people don't seem like people who started out with the intention to deceive. But they did start out with the intention. So if you look and understand and read about Elizabeth Holmes, it seems like she was obsessed with succeeding. He's succeeding at 
young age and yeah. as she got that initial success it got worse for her because now that idea she had that image and now she had to keep that image she didn't feel that she had permission to fail her team didn't have permission to fail and and like she just dragged it on to the she could so that's i mean that's the cost on the society um it's it just takes away from us who we who it just defies the purpose of living is what i feel if we only focus on success as a society there's going to be no fun no excitement no joy yeah what are you going to do with all that success exactly i feel like that's the ultimate question you've got all this success now but what are you going to do with it and my yeah. last question regarding this is how can us as a society and how can organizations cultivate you know an environment and you know a space where it's okay to fail where we can fail and then we can focus on future successes and just growing and developing right yeah that's i i mean that's a, that's a very good question and i think some organizations and some leaders are beginning to ask that question and focus towards that so one of the most important thing that i probably said on dear as well is to just have a more important conversations around success and failure just discussions right if you just create a safe environment for people to express their thoughts they would get to know more about what do they think but because we don't have we just think oh everybody wants success and if you're saying that oh no success is not the most important thing something is wrong with you or you're not ambitious enough right and so we kind of start believing those thoughts so one of the important things is to have and create spaces within organizations within teams and just in general i think probably in our personal conversations to uh, our relationships to create those space to have these conversations around success and failures uh that is one um i was i was just um two weeks ago i was just talking to a client uh, and her focus was she works in tech industry and how she was sharing that it just occurred to her in that conversation that no success is tame not the most important thing if tomorrow somebody just comes and offers her her ceo's job that is not going to make her the most happiest person and it all that i'm saying is it happened for her in that conversation it was not something that was very obvious to her but it felt so obvious once she said it out loud so just showing i'm giving that example to show that how important it is to have the conversation the power yeah. of the so that is that is definitely one creating you know again people work in teams or at organizational level creating the culture of safety and courage as very interesting people do courageous things when they feel safe but people stay safe and stay in their safety zone and comfort zone and not take action when they don't feel safe you see the difference when we are feeling safe we would take risks we are okay to fail because nobody is going to judge me that's the design that's the culture in the organization or that's the culture in the team when we are able to create that when we are we are able to imbibe that in the culture 
people will feel more okay to take those risks. People will feel more comfortable um, to to not worry about failure so much. And the opposite, success. Like success should not be the only uh, point of conversation or success should not be the only thing that's rewarded in the in the organization. So when you start, you know, rewarding different things uh, uh, in the workplace, in the society, that's when um, that's when our perspective, our attitude towards, you know, these things will change. And there is a lot of um, profit driven benefit for this for organizations like places which encourage uh, uh, where failure is more like a part of the process, they are more collaborative. They are more creative because they think and they feel okay to come up with sometimes crazy ideas. <laughs> and they are those crazy ideas, some of those crazy, one or two of those crazy ideas could be the winners, could be the stuff that makes the difference. Um, so yeah, so, so what I'm trying to say is that it's not just something nice it is actually something that helps uh the bigger goal of organizations as well and it is it it helps people so collaboration creativity more risk taking and all these things that allow you to work better be better yeah and i love bringing up that idea of conversation and just having more conversations about it because i've noticed even as we've just had this conversation so far now we've unpacked so much in such a little time and if people just sit down to talk about some of these more negative things like the idea of failure we actually can see it more as you know a tool that we can harness to grow as opposed to something that we have to you know ignore and be like that's bad don't don't fail or don't do that Absolutely, absolutely, Joanna. And the fact that you are just doing this and having these kind of conversations with so many people, yeah. that is creating an impact. That is uh, giving people more space and courage and opportunity to have these conversations. 100%. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation today. And I'd like to yeah, and I'd like to drive into our practices and habit debrief section. So here, I'm just going to ask you um, some personal questions about how you apply some of the things we've talked about in your personal life. So my first question for you is, what is a practice that you specifically use to help deal with failure? So it's it's something I already revealed is the permission slips. Yes. I have like a whole wall in my you know, office where I keep, and these permission slips keep changing depending on what I am doing. But, you know, yeah, so I I, I have these slips that say, Pallavi, you have my full permission to have, like there, there, there's these current phrases where it's one of the permissions is you have my full permission to go have conversations with people, just have conversations with no outcome. Because that's that's one of the things that I'm working on. I I hate uh, talking to new people. It just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. meeting new people. To, I just put that. It's one of the things I want to grow into. So yeah. I think it's just say hello to people. Ask them about them. So you have my full permission to just have conversations with people with no outcome. 
for me, having that permission is like, oh, I don't need an outcome out of my conversation. And it, it's amazing. I feel free. So, and I keep doing different versions of these permission slips, but I address myself in that permission slip in third person. And I feel like it, it really uh, creates the effect for me. Yeah, amazing. And do you have like certain times that you make these permission slips for yourself? Is it when, you know, something comes up and then you're like, okay, let me do this now. Or have you set like a routine? Yeah. So what happens for particularly this exercise, it it depends on what I'm working on, what's going on. You know, so right now, one of the slips, like I said, is this and I stick it to my wall. So I see it a few times in the day. And I, you know, till it's, it's like, I have been unconsciously sending myself messages and society has been sending my messages that I don't have permission to fail, right? Remember? So I'm creating here an alternate message for myself with this permission slip to say that, oh, I have permission to fail. So it, it depends uh, in terms of when and what I'm working on, but you would most of the time, always find one or two permission slips on my wall for sure. (laughs) It is one of my favorite tools. Yeah, amazing. And I forgot to ask this, but like, how did you realize that, you know, making these permission slips was what works for you? So when I was going through that training process and I was talking to my supervisor and in this coaching, she was coaching me and then we came up together and I was like, I just wish I had this permission. And like, I feel like part of me doesn't allow me to fail in this particular space because I carry this burden of, oh my God, this person's life depends on me coaching them better. Like suddenly that pressure felt a lot, right? because it affects the other person. So it was in conversation where it came up that, oh, I don't give myself permission to fail. And then I'd be like, oh, wow. You know, and this this person was American and she she introduced me to the idea of how in American school system, they have this concept of permission slips and we kind of yeah. co-created that. And it is like really one of my favorites. And it's a popular, it's a popular one. You would realize how freeing, you should try it. <laughs> yeah. I love how freeing uh, it feels to people. Yeah. And there is something about writing it down and sticking it where you can see it. Now it's out spoken in the air, not just in your hand. So, yeah, um, that's one of the things. And this was also derived from another funny thing. Uh, and while I have used this a couple of times, I don't currently use it, but it really helped me earlier a lot. Something called a silly hat. Okay. And uh, it's like, and a lot of places and organizations do it. It is again, something I picked up in my coach training was that you bring a silly hat and when you fail, You wear the silly hat and you say you feel silly for making that mistake or failing in that (laughs) asking that question. But the silly hat is also a growing hat. So you say in being silly, what are you learning? In making that mistake, you also have to talk about uh, what did you learn? And, you know, it's amazing when you bring that goofiness to making mistakes, when you make light of your mistakes you would be surprised the amount of things that you can learn. 
Yeah, for sure. So that's that's a little thing I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've got some like a couple great strategies that we can use. Do you recommend <laughs> that everyone can use these? Yeah, and what every everybody can use this. And what I always say uh, to my clients is, think of it as a experiment. So I said I shared a few things right here. Take more. Just pick one that resonates most with you. Try it on. It's like going to the mall, trying the dress. You look at the dress, it looks nice. You want to wear it, see how it fits you, how you feel when you wear that. Do you feel comfortable? Does it work for you? So the same thing goes with all these exercises. Try it on. Does it work for you? If not, go. Try the other one that I said, you know. So that's that's it's not there's not one way of doing things. That's another thing I love about the work that I do. It's I get to co-create with the people that I work. These strategies, these exercises, these things, they go, they make it own, they come, they improvise it. So take it. If you want to tweak something, you know, instead of writing it on the paper, instead of writing it like I came up with writing it in third person, somebody who wants to write it in first person. So, you know, just play with it. Make it your own. So try it on, see what works, improvise. That's that's what I always tell people with all these exercises. They're there to serve you. They're like ingredients of a recipe, but you go make the recipe yourself. Yeah, that's amazing. It's like no one size fits all, but you can, you know, work with things to see if it suits you and you can adapt things, change things and make it your own essentially. Exactly. And since we are having the conversation on failures, I would say one of my best, sessions are where I have failed you know because I have sometimes we have discussed me not I but the strategy has failed let me put it like that yeah my client and I would come up and it would seem like awesome and they will go back and say they'll come back and say you know what that just didn't work like yeah. I it sounded like a great idea but it totally didn't work and I, and, and because now I've trained myself to not take it personally and I ask oh wow and what do you think happened that it didn't work and what are you learning and we would come up we would uncover some amazing things you know so if we are not gripped you know if we don't have that fear gripping us if that gets out of the way you really become curious about okay so if that didn't work what what are you getting aware of it's it's awesome <laughs> what they find there yeah awesome well thank you so much for sharing that with us and telling us about like your experience as well um i'd love to just get into our last section now which is our open mic so here you just have the chance to talk about anything that you're passionate about and i know we've already discussed something so i'd love to hand it over to you to talk about it with us thank you joanna i love the you giving me the space because what i'm going to talk about is one of the things that is really close to my heart. Um, like I shared, I was a therapist before fully uh, switching to being a full-time coach. And uh, and in both these roles, as well as my personal life, one thing that's kept coming up again and again is the idea of self-worth. And um, I think it's a well-meaning concept, right? But it is a concept which is rooted into feelings. How do we feel about our worth, about measuring ourselves into successes and failures? And, and, and it, it revolves around our feelings. And there are a lot of um, 
ways that people talk about, oh, you need to think of yourself as more worthy. You need to have more self-worth. But sometimes it's hard to change the way you feel. And it might be easier for you to feel great about yourself as you're going through things and life is turning out the way you want, right? But if life is sometimes not turning out the way you want, in those moments is when you feel low and you feel down. And I feel it's totally human for a lot of people in those moments to feel not worthy. The What is important is to not take that feeling as a statement of who you are or as a fact about you. And that's where I love to bring the idea of self-value. And the difference is between self-worth and self-value is that self-worth focuses around the feelings and self-value is a behavioral concept. Irrespective of what you feel in the moment, worthy or not worthy, how would you choose to treat yourself? right? You really have worked hard and prepared for that marathon probably for two years. I don't know. And you really want to go for it. And you went for it and probably you couldn't complete it, right? And you, in that moment, it's okay to feel down about yourself. It's human to feel you're not worthy, but it's important to remember that's not a fact. It's a feeling, separating that. And again, going back to your values, what matters to you? What is what is so important about that marathon? What is so important about being strong, about completing things, finding that value, and then taking action towards what's important to you, what you deserve. I, you know, I feel like no matter how low or down I'm feeling, eventually I deserve to treat myself well so I deserve to keep my commitments for myself so I will get back up I'm down I will cry I'll eat my uh, tub of ice cream I will stay (laughs) low you know I'll process my emotions but I know I'm gonna get back out there tomorrow because it's a choice that I have made to treat myself with that respect and one of the examples I love to give around this is is if you own a very expensive piece of jewelry, you know it's it's worthy. Let's use the term. It's very worthy, right? But if you're wearing it carelessly, you're not taking care of it. You're not really valuing it. Your action towards that piece of jewelry is not of shows that you value the jewelry, even though you know it's expensive or worthy of wealth. So that's, uh, that's how I like to differentiate in how we are treating ourselves. Yeah, and while you were saying that last bit, I was thinking of about how the saying of treat others how you want to be treated, but in terms of worthiness, like treat yourself how you want to be treated. Like if you're worthy, and I'm sure everyone wants to be worthy and, you know, like I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but you look at yourself and you're like, I want to be worthy and I want to be see as, seen as worthy. So if you want to be seen that way, then treat yourself that way as well. And obviously I feel like it's a lot easier said than done to get to that point. But like, as you said, like we've talked about strategies and you've also talked about this idea of processing your emotions and everything like that as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I love the spin you put on it. Treat yourself <laughs> the way you want others to treat you, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, somebody, there was this Buddhist monk, he said that, that I, when I'm at my worst is when I need your love the most. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I feel like if you use that on yourself, when you're feeling really not worthy of yourself is when you really need to treat yourself well. You need to really take action to that that shows that you value who you are and your choices. Yeah, 100%. And I'm so glad you brought up this idea of self-worth because it also ties in really well with this idea of failure and like the emotional toll that it can have on us, especially when we're not achieving that standard that we might set for ourselves. I totally agree. And, and one of the things is that we should separate failure and success with, again, the whole self self self-worth self-value who mm. i am yeah it's a result of strategies and actions yeah a hundred percent um i'm so glad that we got a chance to talk about all these different things and i feel like it was such a really comprehensive discussion so thank you so much for joining us today and talking about failure successes and life with me thank you joanna thank you for giving me this space to share these things and thank you for creating the space for a lot of people to share to hear if about all these important conversations that we we need to have more and more as a society yeah for sure I do really enjoy having these conversations and I feel like it's such a great way to meet new people and talk about things that I just don't get to talk about in my everyday life with other people so thank you again thank you perfect so um that brings us to the end of today's episode. So for those of us watching that want to find out a bit more about you, where can we go? Uh, so you can find more about me on my LinkedIn page. Is there a way you can link it, that here? Uh, yeah, and they can go to my website, thewellbeingways.com, as well as my email. If you have any questions on any of the things that I talked about, feel free to email me. I am responsive and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, my email is pallavi, P-A-L-L-V-I, at the rate thewellbeingways.com. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And um, don't worry, we will have Pallavi's details in the description below. But to everyone watching, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you guys next time. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.